Canada. That music means it is the last radio hour of the week. Time for the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Each week I talk with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one of his colleagues, as yesterday, Daryl Hart was our guest. Professor Hart is back today. Yesterday we did a special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue in order to catch up with the Hillsdale Reader. We were talking about Jonathan Edwards yesterday with Dr. Hart and Dr. Arn, and they're back today to talk about none other than George Whitfield. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Dr. Hart, I, I gather we didn't abuse you too much. You're back for a second round. Yeah, no, it's well. good to be back. Thank you for having me. Larry, are you going to up your game now to make sure he never comes back again? No, I don't need to do that. I can, <laughs> I, I can take care of that in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, we left off yesterday. People were very surprised. They played Jonathan Edwards for them in hour two yesterday, and they were very shocked to hear all things Hillsdale in a different part, but occasionally that brings in a new audience member. Let's begin, Dr. Art, with the connection between Edwards and Whitfield and then Ben Franklin and indeed the Wesley brothers. It's a tight-knit group of very famous names. Yes. Well, the Wesleys were English. Um, Edwards, not yet American, uh, never fully American. He's a a colonist, so he's still part of the British uh, system, but um, the, Edwards and Whitfield didn't know each other until Whitfield came to America. He came in 1738 to help with a, a orphanage in Georgia. He was a, a parish priest, actually, in Savannah, and then he returned in 1739 and began a tour to raise money for the orphanage in Georgia. And at, at a certain point there, he met Edwards by going through Massachusetts. He was likely aware, though, of the uh, surprising narrative that we talked about yesterday uh, that Edwards had written. I'm not sure if he was aware, but that, that was published 1736 and seven in uh, England and Scotland. So there's a good chance that Whitfield would have known about Edwards, but it was with Whitfield that the awakening became a big phenomenon. With Edwards, it was largely a local endeavor in particular churches scattered in the colonies, but uh, Whitfield was like the Beatles coming to America. It made it a big deal. Now, for a moment, I want to talk about voice. Now, I'm at the end of the radio week, and my voice is a little bit worn down, but when I give a speech, I often go into my radio voice, and it's a deeper, resonant voice, which works with microphone. Usually, people like Lincoln, in the pre-auditory age, when people had to rely on their own pipes, High and reedy was better for being heard. What is George Whitfield, perhaps the greatest order of the 18th century's voice like? It it was had to be booming. Uh, Franklin records that he estimates um, Whitfield spoke to over twenty thousand at one event at the corner of Second and Market Street in in Colonial Philadelphia. He spoke in. in um, in fields. I mean, this is obviously all before electricity and amplification, electronic amplification of voices. So I would imagine it was a deep 
baritone sort of voice, but that's the way I've just imagined it. I'm not sure if anyone recorded the actual uh, timbre of his his voice, but... um, Let me ask Dr. Arn here. I am right, am I not, Dr. Arn, that Lincoln's voice was high. Yeah, very much. But but also surprisingly high to his audience. Uh, When they started, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln, uh, part of his art was he made a terrible first impression. He was gawky. He was disheveled. His suits were worn out. And then he would start talking, and, and this tall man would produce these high, you call them reedy, notes. And, and so there was stirring. This, there's a very uh, close account of this at Lincoln's Cooper Union address, which was very important because it announced him to the East. By the end of it, everybody was simply spellbound, and uh, mm-hmm. they'd forgotten all that. They just... They, in fact, uh, they would often sit still after Lincoln finished. Well, the accounts of Whitfield are just like that. I mean, he was, ben, they were mentioned, Ben Franklin, who was his friend, uh, you know, and admired him very much, uh, he went to one of those things, one of, one of those uh, large gatherings, uh, believing that it's false that Whitfield could talk to so many people and be heard. And he even measured it out so many paces until he couldn't hear him anymore. And then he calculated how many people could fit in a semicircle of 500 feet. That's where he got 30,000 or 20,000. And so, yeah, he had a and, – and see, he was Billy Graham, right? He was, I mean, if you, if you, there's, a, there's a movie out about Billy Graham that everybody ought to watch because I, I just think he was a galvanizing guy. And, and this is like that. It was news when he came to town, and everybody turned out. Spellbinding is a term we often hear used but don't often reflect on. Spellbinding in the world drenched with Harry Potter, maybe it makes more sense. People who are bound up, who cannot move. Do you have any idea, either of you, when spellbinding came into currency, and was it applied to Whitfield? Uh, I don't know the first part of that answer, I would add, though, to the effects of Whitfield. He was trained as an actor, um, and historians have made something of that. And so he knew how to deliver lines, so to speak. That doesn't take away from his uh, remarkable talents and or from his ministry. But he did, he was trained, and there are accounts of women uh, and children fainting whenever he said the word Mesopotamia. Um, so... I don't know if that's that fits with spellbinding or or knockout power, but there's something going on with um, the way he could speak. And the other thing that's I don't know if you were going to bring this up, but the the thing that I still marvel at is that he did this for 30 years, and he was he was giving on the it's estimated 500 sermons a year, and oftentimes speaking in these places outdoors. I don't. I mean, Hugh, you do the show three hours a day, okay, that's a lot, but you you do have a microphone. But for Whitfield to travel the way he did, as crude as travel was, and then to be speaking the way he did, it's hard to fathom anyone actually having that kind of physical strength. No, actually, uh, radio people are astonished by this. Uh, Because when you do 15 hours of radio a week, by the 15th hour, which this is, 
your voice begins to give out a little bit and you need the weekend off and you don't want to do any speaking, but mostly you don't travel and you don't have to put up with up and down and yelling at people and you don't have to amplify. If I drop my voice a little bit lower, Adam can gain up the machine to increase it. If I even whisper a little bit, he can begin to gain up the machine. That's not available to George Whitfield. So he is preaching the gospel. He is delivering an important message. But I'm sure, Dr. Oren, you've had probably hundreds of professors come through Hillsdale. Every one of them has a unique voice imprint, but some of them are more memorable than others. Am I correct? Well, yeah, we've got the recently retired, most decorated professor of the year, uh, uh, Tom Connor. And anytime we need somebody, to, he still lives in town, Anybody, anytime we need somebody to read something, you know, <laughs> you know, you know with the orchestra, you know, anything, he, you know, it, it, automatically everybody says, get Tom to do it. And he, yeah. you know, he's just got that wonderful big, deep voice, and it travels, and he's got a sympathetic tone to it. Now, by the way, I've looked up the etymology of the word spellbound and see that it dates from 1742. Oh, my. And that means it might be applicable to George Whitfield. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. We learn things every day. And I'm, I'm actually surprised. You have books in your house. Well, you know, uh, Hugh, I, I, it's hard for me to explain what this is, but I'm a scholar. Uh, no, I mean, you must have gone into Mrs. Orange's room or something, because I'm, I'm actually amazed. You look something up. Oh, yeah. I that's an admission that. against interest. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh, you, know, yeah, also, and, you know, here's a tip for your readers. If you want to know what a word means, look up from what it derives. This, is a, this, this word is an entirely English word. There's no Greek or Latin or Germanic uh, or Old English or uh, uh, etymology of it. it it's a, it's, it's, I bet you it comes from charismatic preaching. Well, there's a thing called the Online Etymology Dictionary, which is the work of life's work, loving work of one individual guy, and it's free, and it's excellent. And, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary is the, is the standard. And uh, I think there's a free online version of that. Of course, we get it through our library. But this online etymology dictionary is just a tremendous tool. And I urge people, when they look up the meaning of a word, start with the etymology. That is fascinating. And it's an English word from the period. When we return, more on George Whitfield. Go nowhere, America. Somewhere in the world, news is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here when Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. We skipped over something in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Professor Daryl Hart, president of uh, Hillsdale College, Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. All of the dialogues at hughforhillsdale.com. My friend and colleague Charlie Kirk is listening to them all. I recommend that you do the same thing. It's a, it's a fun way to go where you haven't gone before uh, into the breadth and depth of the Western experience. What well, we skipped over, Dr. Hart, He's an Oxford guy. We're not going to hold that against him like we do against Arne. 
but he was the lowest rank of Oxford undergraduates. Can you explain a little bit about his college experience, George Whitfield's? You mean uh, me? No. Yeah. Oh, you go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, Daryl, explain. Okay. Well, he his he came from a family of innkeepers, and the business was failing, and um, so he needed to work as a servant, uh, doing work for professors, faculty there, in order to receive um, credit for his tuition. Uh, so that's that's not the typical. Oxford experience, especially as portrayed in um, things like uh, Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, which a lot of Americans kind of uh, get nostalgic about Oxbridge life through movies like that. But he also then was a friend and associate of the Wesleys, Charles Wesley and John Wesley, and they were in a holy club, um, which, you know, is kind of a strange name in a way, but that's what they were interested in. They were interested in pursuing holiness. Uh, so it was a very devout group of uh, students, and um, he he converted through those um, those meetings and his contacts with the Wesleys. Now, he is a member of Fellows College. Dr. On, I believe you were at King's College. I'm not sure. Uh, are these um, uh, Fellows commoners, the servant students, still a feature of the universities? <laughs> no. And I was in Worcester College, and King's College is in Cambridge. Um Wait a minute. Yeah. No, New College. I thought you were at New College. You sent no, me to I the New College Chapel. A lot, but, uh, uh, that, and that's, you know, there are 30 of them, you, and they, and the old ones, uh, uh, Worcester College is middle-aged, but New College is named New College because it came after University College and one or two others. And so it's the new college, and that was 650 years ago. It's really something. And, and everybody who knows anything about Oxford is now watching Endeavor, the PBS show, because it's shot there. But are you surprised uh, about fellows having servants among their students? That that does seem rather medieval. Well, see, the you know, there's a there there are great things about that, but also evils in it too. So Whitfield got to go to college in part because he worked. And he worked his way through college, and that's how he did it. Now, what at Hillsdale College, 80% of our kids have some kind of a job. Um, but the, you know, the evils that come from it, especially in the lower school, in what they call public school in Britain, the hazing has, you know, it's not so much anymore, probably still some, though. But, it, it you know, it, it borders on the cruel. And if you want to understand what that's like, read C.S. Lewis' uh, Surprised by Joy, because his tales of the lower parts of public school before he left it and went to study with a man named Kirkpatrick, it's just, it was just a misery to him. That's uh, why I like Dickens. Dickens describes public schools so well. Steerforth and David Copperfield being two of the graduates who are most memorable from that time. But here we are in the 1700s and a student club member uh, the Wesleys are not there on charity, are they, uh, uh, a doctor? No, I don't believe they are. I don't know for sure, but I, they, the, their father was a priest in the Church of England, and I suspect that there were enough provisions right. um, for them to go the, the, the regular route, which was not exactly regular because this was still a very, very exclusive uh, form of education. But um, But no, I don't think they were there 
in, in that kind of working capacity. When we come back, I want to talk just a little bit more about this club because it's a club that changed the world, and it began in an Oxford, I don't know, commons room or dorm room or something, but the people who participated in it did indeed change the world, primarily through George Whitfield, but the Wesleys were no mean uh, preachers themselves. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Stop action-packed information. Blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Joined by Dr. Ward, by Larry Arn, and Dr. Ward, we're talking about what did George Whitfield do at Oxford and what was the kind of theology that he adopted that made him enter into the itinerant preacher life? Um, well, before he um, had a break with the Wesleys over what you would call, I guess, Calvinism and predestination and, the, and those sorts of uh, doctrines associated with Calvinism, um, the Holy Club out of which Whitfield came and uh, was part of with the Wesleys was in some ways a carryover from Puritanism, and it was a, an idea of trying to make all of life every day, uh, every aspect of every day, committed to God. They met for prayer, Bible study, and they also engaged in various kinds of um, efforts to alleviate poverty and help in prisons and the like. So it was a, a very activist sort of Protestantism that that you could see earlier with, with Puritans in the 16th and 17th centuries. But then, um, and that would have meant a kind of Calvinist uh, view of salvation, the idea of God's sovereignty and choosing people, that people are so sinful they cannot choose God on their own, so there needs to be some sort of work of God in their lives. And that was um, part of the, the break of eventually among um the, the so-called Methodists, Whitfield became a Calvinistic Methodist, as it were, and the Wesleys went a different direction. Um, but it's in some ways a smaller theological difference as well that may get too much into the weeds of Protestant theology. Is it fair to say that both believed in the warming experience? Uh, Wesley records he had a an unusual warming of the heart after, I think he was returning from one of his Georgia trips, and Whitfield's going back and forth. Did they believe in an emotional attachment to their faith? Yes, if you want to call that the new birth. I mean, the, the, the idea of the new birth or the born-again experience, which, of course, you can see earlier in Christian history, even with the Apostle Paul, say, <clears throat> and the road to Damascus experience. But the, what, what we associate with born-again Protestantism and evangelicalism really does begin to emerge during this first Great Awakening, through the efforts of the Wesleys, especially uh, in the British Isles, and then uh, Whitfield in North America, although he also was, went back and forth between Britain and, and America. Now, when he moves through America, giving these 18,000 sermons, 500 a year, uh, 10 a week, is he making what we would uh, know in popular culture as an altar call? 
No, I think that comes more in the 19th century with the so-called Great Awakening of Charles Finney. Um, you, you could see the the fingerprints of it, uh, the, the sermon that we have in the reader at Hillsdale, The Kingdom of God, it does end. He's, I think he's giving the sermon in a, in a church burial ground, and he's sort of reminding people of their ultimate destiny, that they're going to wind up there in, in, the, in the ground at some point, and they're going to meet their maker. And that is a way to generate, um, to call for people to have belief, to remind them of their, um, of their death and what may be coming, and, and that could produce an emotional kind of experience. But the actual idea of calling people to come forward and then sit even at an anxious bench, which is what um, Charles Finney called it. That that doesn't happen with Whitfield. Now, so, in I want uh, to read you a paragraph, Hugh. Please. It illustrates exactly what uh, Daryl just said. It's a uh, it's a uh, it's not at the end of a sermon. It's at uh, about three paragraphs down. But re- listen to this: Do not turn your backs. Do not let the devil hurry you away. Be not afraid of convictions. Do not think worse of the doctrine because preached outside the church walls. Now, they're standing in a field. Our Lord, in the days of his flesh, preached on a mount, in a ship, and a field. And I am persuaded many have felt his gracious presence here. Indeed, we speak what we know. Do not, therefore, reject the kingdom of God against yourself. So that's the next thing to it. And, uh, and he really did stir them up. Now, my, my question for you, Dr. Arndt, do you think it is a necessary sign of a good health in a university that the population of that university is becoming more attached to religious belief than it is less attached? Because it seems to me most universities are in the business of tearing down religious belief now. Some, including Hillsdale, are quite supportive of it and see it grow. Yeah, well, uh, that's, that's not a difficult question to answer. If you just look at any old college, I mean, old, 100 years old or more, ours is 175 years old, in, in England or America, they're all founded with uh, purposes that encompass both uh, knowledge and faith of God. And that means they're set up with that purpose. And, and it's, you know, the, the, the working out of Christian, the Christian faith is the one that's friendly to knowing, the most friendly to knowing. It, you're invited. Jesus is referred to as the Word, something God has to say, right? So you can hear what he says, and you can think about it. And that means that that's, uh, that's you know, hallowed in America, and amazingly, almost entirely extinguished today, and that's in recent decades. That's not an old thing. No, there is a, in Harvard, the oldest college, Harvard Memorial Church, which was until recent decades a centerpiece of life. It is now a formal place where occasions are held and the occasional funeral and wedding will be held there. But it is not. a, And they have a daily chapel and it's poorly attended. I am curious, uh, Dr. Hart, if Whitfield had to dumb down his learning. We think of Oxford grads, present company excluded, of having come forth with a great deal of learning and going into the high church and leading a rather refined and intellectual life. That is not what Whitfield is about. Does he have to dumb down his sermons? 
I don't know if he dumbs it down so much as simply um, the the analogy I use is with H.L. Mencken writing about Billy Sunday in the 20th century, and it's a, a little <clears throat> anachronistic, but he hit people with everyday life. He used imagery from the fields, from the markets, um, and I think that's probably a smart way to go. So in a sense, it's not the learned sermons that he would have grown up with in the Church of England, which may have engaged in certain kinds of philosophical or moral reasoning as part of what you do in an established uh, church setting. But <clears throat> Whitfield didn't do that, and, and that was also part of what distinguished him from the regular clergy, both in America and the British Isles, that he could speak in the vernacular, as it were. Protestantism starts by speaking in the vernacular, and, and Whitfield carries that to, to another level by using the image, imagery of everyday life, as well as sort of thinking about how people can live daily for God, as opposed to going to church weekly and, and letting that be the uh, focus of your, of your devotion. Now, Dr. Art, next week we turn to Ben Franklin, who is a critical, critical figure in American history. What does Whitfield do to Franklin, if anything, and what does he do to plow the ground for the revolution? Well, uh, first of all, Whitfield is a democratic phenomenon, right? Huge throngs of people, anybody can come for free. Each is responsible for his own salvation. And, you know, I, I, I should mention in that context that... Uh, Whitfield was an insufficient in enemy of slavery. He actually owned slaves, and he called for the introduction of slavery into Georgia, where it had been ba banned by James o Oglethorpe, because he thought that he could better support his orphanage if he had slaves. He was also a huge spokesman for the good treatment of slaves, but that doesn't mean he differed from the Wesleys, yes. who were against it root and branch. And I, I think what that tells us, by the way, is that this transition that happened, and happened extensively in America, that, that they came to see, uh, they, they began by seeing slavery as an ordinary thing, and they ended up seeing it as an evil. And that was largely complete by the time of the American Revolution, although there was a reversal because of the introduction of historicist thought into America. Anyway, the point is, that's worth saying. But it's also true that these preachers, and George Whitfield was the greatest of the preachers, what they're talking about, and see, Whitfield died before the American Revolution. 1770, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, the tensions had started, but only seven years before he died. And so he, he's not a figure in that, but he is a figure for this understanding of the position of the human being responsible himself before God and responsible himself to make a choice to respond. I was going to, I was going to venture a theory, and you can tell me if it's not, is that he also is of uh, the gospel that you matter. Uh, you, you tradesmen, you farmers, you yeomen of the earth, you all matter. I am here to talk to you. And that's a very, as you use, small d democratic thing, and it's new. In Great Britain, not many of those tradesmen actually mattered. Yeah, not at that time. Uh, changing, changed a lot in the 19th century. Um, and, you know, in the, but Britain, Britain became a represent, representative government of all adults. That, that was finally completed in 1927, right, much after we did it. 
So, yeah, but that's, and, and see this, uh, just, you know, I, you know, I personally hope for a great revival. I'm looking for the next Billy Graham. Uh, when we when we come back from break, we'll see if the next Billy Graham will pick up something from the first Billy Graham. It would be George Whitfield. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back to conclude this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Dr. Ward and Larry Arn are here. Larry is the president of Hillsdale College. Get your application in hillsdale.edu because tens of thousands of people are doing that. Watch the courses online. Join us every week. All of the Hillsdale dialogues are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. George Whitfield is who we are talking about today from 1714 to 1770 is his lifespan. But his last 20 years plus are spent in the United States preaching often. Uh, Dr. Ward, if there was going to be a new great uh, heart, Dr. Hart, if there was going to be a new great awakening in the United States and it was going to be based on Whitfield's message, what would it sound like? Oh, boy. Jeez, uh, that's the really hard one. You mean today? Yeah. Um, right. It's a sermon. Well, I still, I still think it would sound like Whitfield in, in many respects. There is this phenomenon called New Calvinism associated with figures like uh, John Piper. Piper, a, a Baptist minister in Minneapolis, now retired, but was quite prominent and popular, still very popular, associated with uh, organizations like the Gospel Coalition. Uh, they, in some ways, his inspiration came more from Edwards, but Edwards and Whitfield's theology is very similar, and... <clears throat> Within that world of Protestantism, anyway, that's that sounds. Like I, I'm not surprised to hear you bring up Piper, whose book "Desiring God" is sort of a modern Christian classic, and it does speak to changing every day into Sunday, which I think is part of Whitfield's message in the Kingdom of God, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, that you live before the face of God every single day, and that you serve God every single day, and you seek to be holy every single day, every minute of every day. It can get pretty intense, and I mean, people do burn out from that, but, but, but it still has, uh, when, it, when it starts in the 18th century, it has, has great appeal. And just to double back to what we were talking about at the end of the last segment, as far as the connections to the revolution and American founding, I, I think people see that you can be religious and devout without an established church, thanks to Whitfield. And, that, and however you want to come down on the distinction between church and state and the American founding, I think a lot of people could, could recognize, and Franklin saw this in Whitfield, that you can be a devout Christian and not have to have, to have the apparatus of a bishop in, in the American colonies or in the American states organizing religious life for everyone. And Dr. Arn, no, I would say the argument against a great revival happening in America ever again is that in the time of Whitfield, the university was in favor of faith, and ac academia today is opposed to it. And not just in college, but in high school and elementary school, academia is largely hostile to religious belief. Yeah, but isn't it also true that uh, in step with that, the, ac the academic world is losing distinction and prestige? Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, first of all, what does it mean that we live in a time where Harvard, which is, you know, the greatest American university, and I don't know if it's the best, but it's certainly one of the best, that's almost like a curse word 
to millions of people. And why? Because it actually is not, uh, org- you know, the, the, the best thought in the world uh, of human beings thinking is, is what is the human being and what is the good life for it? And how, when you turn to politics, can everyone be afforded that life? Well, and, and all the great, Whitfield, you know, I mean, it's a, he's a wonderful man. With, you know, his flaws like we have him today, too. Uh, he's appealing to the best part of every person who comes to hear him. And that's why they're moved so much, right? People love that. And that's an American thing, too, is widespread here first. So the point is... And the university, that's, you know, John, you know, John Adams went to Harvard. What did he learn there? He, he you know, he, he wrote the, the Constitution of Massachusetts. He was one of the people who made our country. And so in that time, you know, there's nothing but good from the university. And, and James Madison goes to Princeton and, and Witherspoon teaches him the same thing. And right. universities used to do that. But I would guess it is rare. I know Hillsdale. I know other places do it. But uh, we, we've got to have, what, 90% of institutions of higher learning are at best, at best indifferent to religious belief. Best, yeah. Yeah, and that's not, and see, remember, uh, the movement, in my opinion, in modern thought, and especially these days, it's amazing how despotic it is, is that we have to, we have to seize power over everything, even the standards themselves. And that's a rebellion against God and a rebellion against nature. And C.S. Lewis, in The Abolition of Man, which everybody ought to read, uh, he, he just shows how that leads inevitably. The rule of man over nature results necessarily in the rule of some few over everybody else. And, and that means that Harvard is looked upon by people as an enemy. And uh, in some ways it is. It, it, well, in many ways it is. In some ways it remains true to its mission, but the mission is completed, Hillsdale. Gentlemen, thank you both. George Whitfield yields to Ben Franklin next week, America, as we continue to go through the American Heritage Reader. I'm holding it up so you can see it. You can get it from Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Thank you, America. Thank you, Adam and Ben. Thank you, Harley and Dwayne. I'll be back next Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. You absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.